0: This is Coast to Coast with Robert Ambrogi and J. Craig Williams, America's top web bloggers in the legal profession. And yes, they are attorneys, both of them. One from California, one from Massachusetts. You can only guess what will happen next. Coast to Coast is sponsored by Law.com, right here on the Legal Talk Network.
1: Welcome to the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen today on our show Coast to Coast. I'm Robert Ambrogi from Massachusetts.
2: And I'm Craig Williams from Southern California. I write a blog called MayItPleaseTheCourt.com. And Bob?
1: And I write a blog called Law Sites uh, and also another blog called Media Law, both of which are available through LegalLine.com, L-E-G-A-L-I-N-E.com.
2: And Near and dear to Bob's heart is a topic that was on last week's show on bloggers and journalists, which is now up on the Coast to Coast website, which you can find at LegalTalkNetwork.com. Today's topic, though, is on pro bono lawyers and really where have all the pro bono lawyers gone. The American lawyer just came out with its annual survey of big firm pro bono. And to quote a line from the article written by Eric Press, When it comes to free legal services, never have so many owed so much to so few.
1: Craig, and also in the second part of our show today, we're going to take another look at the uh, Supreme Court with a preview of some of the important cases uh, slated to be taken up by the court this year.
2: Well, Bob, I'm really excited about today's show, so let's get started with our discussion about pro bono work by lawyers nationwide. Uh, Our first guest is Mark O'Brien, who is the deputy director of Pro Bono Net. ProBono.net has become a real force behind the number of web initiatives to promote delivery of legal services to low-income people. Thank you for joining us today, Mark. Thanks.
1: And also joining us today is Ken Babcock. Ken is the Executive Director and General Counsel for the Public Law Center in uh, Orange County, California. Uh, Through volunteers and staff, the Public Law Center provides free civil legal services, including counseling, individual representation, community, education, and strategic litigation and advocacy to challenge societal injustices. Now, in its 24th year, the PLC is sponsored by the Orange County Bar Association and is supported by lawyers throughout the county. Welcome to the show, Ken. Thanks for having me.
2: Well, I guess the one of the first questions I want to toss out to Mark and Ken is whether they feel that there's a lack of pro bono lawyers in our society and whether we're really suffering from an absence of lawyers.
3: Well, I think the the answer is is yes we don't have enough lawyers doing pro bono work i think as the american lawyer article points out there have been some extraordinary contributions by many lawyers doing some phenomenal pro bono work. But the fact of the matter is uh, the needs are overwhelming. Uh, the poverty population continues to increase. The gulf between the haves and the have-nots in this country continues to grow. And so there is continues to be a, a tremendous need that, uh, that even with the amount of, of great work that's been done, the need hasn't been filled.
4: I think that's right. I think I'd agree with Ken on that. Um, uh, I think there's definitely been um, both growth of recognition within the private bar uh, about its own obligations, uh, both to fulfill its professional responsibilities, but also essentially to take on the role of good corporate citizen. Um, this is not uh, a role that's unique to lawyers to uh, contribute meaningfully to the com- community, uh, but lawyers have a special um, Role to play um, with with respect to delivery of legal services, and I think there have been some improvements in attitudes in the bar overall, um, and some great examples, as Ken says, of, of um, firms that have stepped up to do either sort of large scale, important, uh, groundbreaking uh, work, or to just uh, increase the amounts of uh, legal services that they're providing overall. Um, but it's still it's still definitely a work in progress.
2: There's been a lot of flack in uh, recently about the definition of pro bono, and especially in New York where they're considering how to define it, whether lawyers donating time to nonprofit organizations qualify as pro bono. How do the two of you feel about that?
4: Well, I definitely uh, think that far too much time has been spent over the last year talking about definitions of pro bono in New York, um, and uh I wish some of those efforts had been directed into uh, trying to materialize more pro bono or community service, whether it's legal or non-legal. Um, but I think that uh, there's no question uh, that, as I said before, because of the, um, the sort of monopoly position that lawyers have in terms of uh, meaningful access to the court system, uh, there is an obligation for lawyers to provide legal services. Uh, this isn't to... Undercut the importance of other types of community services that lawyers might provide. It's not, uh, or the financial contributions that lawyers must provide, um, but there's a set of uh, skills and resources that lawyers uniquely have that I think they have to be called on to contribute as well. Um, I also think that uh, what's unfortunate about some of the definitional um, sort of disagreements is that in my own experience of looking at. Uh, uh contributions in the sector is that um there you know pro bono uh legal service delivery and broader um, public service uh contributions by lawyers tend to go hand in hand i don't think it's a there's a, i don't think there's a zero sum game of you either uh provide legal assistance or you provide um, other forms of help
1: Mark, I wonder if I could ask you something that, that is of great interest to me. Is the question of how technology can be used to enhance the delivery of legal services, particularly to those who uh, are not adequately served? And I know that uh, you're you're doing some of that with Pro Bono .net. I wonder if you could just give me the the nutshell of of how you're helping, uh, how Pro Bono Bet-Net is trying to uh, address that issue.
4: Sure. Pro bono Net was started, Michael Hertz and I started it about six years ago here in New York. We both came out of uh, backgrounds of being in private law firms, running pro bono programs at, at large law firms. And um, we were uh, also uh, looking at um, the problems in, in sort of growing the contribution of the private bar to pro bono and, and looked at, there have been various surveys over the years about what the obstacles are to participation. And, most of those obstacles that have come forward have to do with the sort of inefficiencies in the system, I think, that uh, that there's uh, it's difficulty in making a match between when a lawyer is interested and wants to get involved and knowing who's the right organization to get involved in, uh, finding out how to get training so that they can uh, um, uh, feel comfortable uh, taking on a case and then get support for cases uh, if they're, act- if they're uh, working in an area of law that isn't their sort of main area of specialty. Um, And we saw the opportunity for technology to be used as a a tool to overcome some of those barriers and uh, the Pro BonoNet website, which is at um, www.probono.net, has been built uh, along the model of connecting individual lawyers with public interest organizations that uh, refer cases and have expertise in uh, most of the major poverty law areas.
2: Ken, there was a American Association of Law Schools Commission study that said that at some law schools, virtually no law students participate in providing pro bono work. Do you think that learning how to get involved with pro bono starts in law school, or is it something that lawyers can get involved with at any point in time?
3: I think it's absolutely critical that this um, uh, learning take place at the law school level. Uh, we always feel that if we can interest a, a law student um, in pro bono, uh, we'll have a volunteer lawyer for, for life. Uh, and, and so it, it is critical that law schools uh, step up to the plate and include uh, uh, training about pro bono, uh, information about pro bono opportunities, uh, creating a culture whereby law students will more readily get involved in pro bono. And And many, many law schools throughout the country, are involved in those kinds of efforts. Uh, and we're seeing a big difference in, in the numbers of volunteers we're seeing and, and the interest in pro bono in general. It used to be the case in the, the pro bono field that, oh, it was nice to have a law student or two um, volunteering, and, and, and that was all good, well and good. But now, I'd say most organized pro bono programs, if they're fortunate enough to be in a marketplace where there are major law schools, uh, they have a, a steady diet of law students volunteering with them. And and as I said, we we. Really Really do think it's important in creating that kind of culture for a lawyer's career. That doesn't mean that lawyers can't uh, 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 learn to appreciate pro bono and get interested in pro bono, even if they weren't exposed uh, to it in law school. And, and that's really the major part of the work that organizations like ours and organizations like Marks do to, to try and make it more doable, if you will, for lawyers in private practice to do pro bono work. There are lots of different things that that we do and lots of different uh, barriers that we try and overcome. You know, one thing I wanted to get back to for just a second, Craig, you have this question about uh, the definition of pro bono. And we haven't really had the debate here in California that Mark discussed uh, that's been going on in New York. But I do agree that it's critically important that lawyers get involved in providing legal assistance. Um, It's great when lawyers go out and help community groups. And I wouldn't want to discourage anyone from going out and feeding the homeless or working to clean up a neighborhood or or what have you. Those are good things that lawyers ought to do. But lawyers do have special skills. Um, They have a license to practice law. No one can go into a courtroom and represent a victim of domestic violence other than a lawyer. No one can go into a courtroom and represent a tenant facing eviction from an uninhabitable apartment but a lawyer. Lawyers have special skills, and they need to use them. Now, there have been many lawyers that have started to do work for nonprofits uh, that are using their skills as lawyers. A number of transactional lawyers um, who historically haven't had as many pro bono opportunities are getting more and more involved in providing pro bono legal assistance to nonprofits so that those nonprofits don't have to go out and spend their scarce program dollars to hire a lawyer, and that's that's a a tremendous way that transactional lawyers can give back to the community and help to strengthen nonprofits so that those nonprofits in our various communities can better serve those who they're trying to serve.
2: Ken, I think it was about 20 years ago that California made uh, continuing legal education mandatory. Do you feel that they should be making pro bono work mandatory?
3: well that that again is, is that 's a tough question and and I think it 's one that would require a, a significant amount of of debate and analysis and and Much as Mark mentioned that uh, the debate in New York has taken time away from people actually doing the pro bono work, that would be one of my concerns that the debate over whether we ought to have mandatory pro bono um, might take us away from the important task of actually doing the pro bono work I, I think that that it really is incumbent upon all of us who work in this field to do everything we can to try and make the experience for the potential volunteer lawyer as easy as possible. The volunteering ought to be a, a seamless process, um, and certainly the kinds of things that, that pro bono net has been involved in, the kinds of things that I think we 're doing that other programs around the country are doing to to make information available to provide training to to really give volunteers the, the opportunity to easily get involved. Is really the best place to look for, for trying to increase the the number of lawyers. Um, but at the end of the day, one of the things that lawyers talk about, and this is really something we don't have as much control over, they talk about a lack of time. They just don't have the time to do pro bono work. And you know, we're we're all in a very busy world. Um, uh, it, you know, think of the last time you were ever at a at a meeting where you didn't see half a dozen lawyers either pulling out their cell phones or their BlackBerries or what have you. And and given the realities of our increasingly busy world, I think we in the pro bono field are going to be facing additional challenges to get lawyers involved. Does it mean we ought to go the mandatory pro bono route? I'm not sure.
1: We just have a a few seconds left, but I want to ask, are there any areas of law in which the need is particularly great for pro bono lawyers? Are there underserved areas?
3: Yeah, I think one of probably the, the greatest underserved area is in the family law arena. Um, family law is a specialized area of practice. Um, uh, the larger firms uh, in most metropolitan areas don't have family law practices. Typically, family law practitioners are smaller firm or sole practitioners, and the economics make it more difficult to do pro bono work uh, in that kind of uh, of a practice, um, and yet the, the needs in community after community uh, that, you, that you talk to are, are simply overwhelming uh and i think what you're seeing are our efforts by programs to try and again make it easier for lawyers to get involved in those kind of cases
4: mark is that your perception well? i think that's right that it reflects that that's just an overwhelming area of need in the courts generally um i think another area where there's a real challenge is trying to look at uh um, bridging the sort of rural urban divides um even in some states where there's been a tremendous efforts and success in increasing participation rates, particularly focused around some of the larger uh, law firms and practices. Um, the distribution of those services into rural areas in the Straits is, is, is a real challenge.
3: And I think that's an area where technology, um, programs like Pro Bono Net, um, uh, uh, video technology, uh, uh, I think that's where there's tremendous promise. Uh, If we can harness the tremendous resources of lawyers in urban areas to provide um, greater services in rural areas, then then I think we'll have really accomplished something.
1: We'd like to thank you uh, very much for participating. Kent Babcock of the Public Law Center and Mark O'Brien of Pro Bono. Uh, Really appreciate your being on the program today. My pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for having me. We're going to take a quick break, and when we return, uh, we will talk about the news from the blogosphere.
2: And then we'll take a fresh look at the Supreme Court. Our guest will be Washington Bureau Chief for the National Law Journal, Marsha Coyle. We'll be right back.
0: We invite you to visit Law.com for timely legal news and in-depth resources. From daily headlines to practice-specific updates, Law.com provides up-to-date information for those working in the legal profession. Coast to Coast is produced by the Legal Talk Network and a staff of broadcast professionals. If you have an idea for a topic or a show, we want to hear from you. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and send us an email. Now, from the legal blogger sphere, host J. Craig Williams from the great state of California and Robert Ambrogi from the Commonwealth of Massachusetts.
2: Well. The thing that surprised me about today's blogosphere article was uh, the the jailing, rather, of a Chinese blogger and uh, the publishing on the blog Herald on Monday of 11 subjects forbidden to Chinese bloggers, Bob. Apparently, um, you can't violate the Chinese constitution. You can't endanger national security. You can't destroy China's reputation. You can't arouse national feelings or violate national policy or uh Diffuse rumors or information that uh, might be pornographic or violent. And there's a whole list of 11 different subjects on the blog, called, which I thought was tremendously interesting. And then uh, the Committee to Protect Bloggers notes that China is blocking TypePad, Blogger, blogsum and a list of other blog platforms.
1: That is interesting. It, it was uh, uh, timely then, I guess, that uh, the group Reporters Without Borders published uh, just this past week uh, handbook for bloggers and cyber dissidents that that not only is a guide to how to blog, but how to blog anonymously, and uh, uh, it's aimed at political activists in in countries where blogging is often one of the few uh, forums for uh, free expression. Uh, You can find that at the Reporters Without Borders website. You can download it from there. It's www.rsf.org. now we'd like to introduce uh, uh, our guest for the second part of the show today. Uh, we are honored to have with us Marcia Coyle, who is the Washington bureau chief for the National Law Journal and a guest analyst for the PBS program Newshour. And uh, and I'm honored to say a former colleague of mine. Welcome to the show, Marcia.
5: Thanks, Bob. I'm very happy to be with you. Uh, Marsha,
1: I wondered if uh, you've you've got uh, 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 a wonderful uh, couple of articles in the September nineteenth uh, issue of the National Law Journal in which you give a heads up on some of the important cases that are coming down the pike this right. year. Uh, and uh, of interest, there you've uh, you've talked to a couple of lawyers who suggest that uh, this is going to be. Uh, I think you quote uh, Jay Seculo, who says. Uh, I think this term will has all the hallmarks of a of a blockbuster. Uh, what are some of the what are some of the issues that could make this a blockbuster that are coming up this year?
5: Well, I think he's absolutely right. And in a way, it's it's a shame that uh, the tr- the upcoming term has been somewhat overshadowed by the uh, confirmation hearings that we just had and the prospect of another nominee probably by the end of this week for the O'Connor seat. Uh, this, this term uh, has cases that, sort of touch the hot buttons uh, in many different areas of the law, and uh, something else before I go into the cases that I'll I'll say about the term is it usually takes uh, one to three terms uh, before we get a feel for how a justice judges, a new justice judges. But I think this term, because of the nature of the cases, is going to show us very quickly what kind of justice John Roberts is likely to be, as well as whoever uh, fills the seat of Sandra Day O'Connor.
1: Well, one of the things you point out is that is that John Roberts is a sophisticated business litigator and that that's likely to to make a mark uh, right away.
5: The the business uh, community and, and the lawyers in particular who handle those cases on a regular basis are very hopeful that Roberts is going to bring a much more informed eye to the petitions that are filed with the court, because there's a general sense that uh, the, the justices have not been taking the most important business cases, uh, and, and they're hoping that since he has handled uh, many business cases at the appellate level throughout his career, that he's going to be able to identify the issues that are, that are of, of great importance to business and add more of them to the docket. Uh, on the other side of the docket, uh, we have cases that uh, cross <laughs> the, the spectrum of uh, abortion, uh, religion, First Amendment, f- uh, uh, free speech. Uh, so it's it's really uh, an amazing term, I think, the, the way it's shaping up now. And also we're going to see uh, some revisiting of uh, issues like states' rights and federalism in the context of the Americans with Disabilities Act, uh, cases that are going to tell us whether the Rehnquist federalism revolution is going to continue, expand, or uh, contract. Um, So I'd be happy to to go into any of these cases that tickle your fancy. Uh, You you can pick uh, any area, and uh, I'll I'll give you a rundown of them.
2: Well, Marsha, before we do that, Mm -hmm. you speak as though uh, John Roberts is pretty much of a foregone conclusion.
5: It seems that that's very true. Uh, The uh, various blogs have been keeping uh, a vote tally as senators have announced what they're going to do this week. Uh, Right now, uh, the final vote is expected to come no later than Thursday. Uh, Some Senate leaders have said it may come uh, Wednesday night, but it looks as though uh, he may easily uh, past the 60-vote the mark, uh, maybe even get as many as 70 uh, for confirmation. And then the rumor has it that the president uh, will announce on the heels of his confirmation who the next nominee will be for the O'Connor vacancy. And part of the urgency there is the Senate schedule. Uh, the Senate does not want to be in session during uh, much of December, uh, unless they absolutely have to. And most confirmations take about two months to uh, complete. Usually there's a month of research done and then the hearings occur. And so it's about a two-month process. So if the Senate wants to keep to its schedule, uh, it would like to see a nominee announced as soon as possible. And uh, I guess we would have hearings in November.
2: Well, as we look ahead to that nominee, who's on your short list?
5: (laughs) The the names seem to go on and off the short list uh, very quickly. Uh, Trying to read these tea leaves is is very difficult. Uh, The president has indicated that diversity is an important factor, so everybody's uh, talking about whether it's going to be a woman, a woman, a minority, uh, say, a Hispanic or an African-American. And so the names floated are people like Attorney General Alberto Gonzalez. Uh, in the African-American column, people like uh, Larry Thompson, who is a former deputy attorney general and now is general counsel at uh, Pepsi. Uh, women uh, out of uh, the Fifth Circuit, some Bush favorites, Priscilla Owen, uh, over in the Ninth circuit, Consuela uh, Callahan. Um, let me see who else. Uh, uh Alice Batchelder in the 6th circuit. Uh lots of names, but I, I I really couldn't tell you who's up or down right now.
2: Well, I have one last question and I'm going to throw it back to Bob, but the sure. um, with what's happening in uh this short list with uh Bush's kind of offhanded comment the last time that he would take a lawyer without any real uh, judicial experience it got every lawyer's hope up in the country. (laughs) (laughs) I wouldn't bet
1: on that one. Craig, did you send your resume?
2: No, I didn't, as a matter of fact, (laughs) but I I did send yours in, Bob.
1: Well, that's good. Unfortunately, I wouldn't pass the... uh...
5: Well, you know, I hate to tell you guys, but the last time that happened was... uh, Thirty-four years ago uh, with Lewis Powell, who was plucked out of private practice uh, to go on the court. And I guess you could say the same year, William Rehnquist, who was a Justice Department uh, lawyer uh, but had no judicial experience. So the trend has been uh, in the last 30-odd years to go look at the courts of appeal And, you know, that makes some sense, I think, for presidents because they're trying to look for some predictability in terms of who they appoint, and that's where the people have a record that they can examine. Although, as with John Roberts, uh, in terms of court experience, it's not a very long record sometimes. He was just on the bench two years, and I think Clarence Thomas uh, was only on the bench 18 months before he was tapped the Supreme Court. Uh,
1: one, I, one case I wanted to ask you about before, we're running low on time already, and, mm-hmm. and uh, being up in Boston, which has more than its fair share of law schools, one case that's being watched pretty closely up in these parts is Rumsfeld versus Fair.
5: Yeah, great case.
1: Uh, and I, I wonder if you can just give me a little bit of a nutshell about that case.
5: Sure. This case involves the so-called Solomon Amendment that actually was adopted by Congress back in 1994. And it requires um, uh, institutions of higher education to provide uh, military recruiters with the same access to campus and students that they provide to other employers, or if they don't, they will lose their federal funding. Uh, This really wasn't enforced much until after 9-11. Prior to 9-11, most institutions had made accommodations for the military, but after 9-11, the Department of Defense and the Bush administration uh, wanted equal access. They wanted the exact same kind of access that private recruiters had. And the problem here is that it runs up against the Solomon Amendment really was enacted because uh, law schools throughout the country have non-discrimination policies stating that they'll only assist recruiting efforts by potential employers who certify they don't discriminate on the basis of sex, race, sexual orientation, and other grounds. But the military has the don't ask, don't tell policy, and that does discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation. So the military couldn't certify that it would comply with the law school's policies. And when uh, law schools wouldn't let them come forward on campuses, the Solomon Amendment was enacted. Well, after 9-11, when the uh, Bush administration became more aggressive about access, uh, a number of law schools in a coalition decided to challenge the Solomon Amendment and That's what's
1: the forum before the for th- academic and institutional rights.
5: Right, That's exactly. And what's the before the court today is a ruling by the Third Circuit that said that the Solomon Amendment infringes First Amendment rights by compelling speech and it violates the association rights of law schools by requiring them to sponsor the military recruiters. So that's really the issue before the court, the, the government's arguing, hey, um, we're not compelling speech. They don't have to take our funding. So there really is no First Amendment violation here. And they point to the power of Congress under the Spending uh, Clause to require recipients of federal funds to comply with certain requirements. So they're arguing there's no, no speech involved here, uh, no First Amendment violation. Uh, you don't have to take our money. The uh, military is also arguing, along with the government, that it's very important today, post-9-11, that uh, JAG recruiters have access to law schools because JAG lawyers are very important to the war against terrorism.
1: And of course, Harvard said this week they would allow the recruiters on campus while the case is
5: pending. Right. That's They did announce that, but I also noticed, I think about a week ago, uh, there were three small law schools uh, that were informed they were going to lose their federal funding for not allowing um, uh, military recruiters equal access to the campus and students. Uh, Surprisingly, um, uh, I think that was the first announcement in in quite a while that uh, federal funds uh, were going to be withheld.
2: Well, Bob and Marcia, thank you very much, Marcia, for your time. It looks like we are out of time today, uh, so we'd like to thank all of our guests. Marcia Coyle from uh, National Law Journal Washington Bureau Chief and PBS analyst. Thanks very much.
1: You're welcome. Thanks a lot, Marcia.
2: Sure, Bob.
0: Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast with Robert Ambrogi and J. Craig Williams. Coast to Coast has been sponsored by Law.com. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network.